Welcome back to the Coach Growth Podcast. I am your host, Coach Angie McGacky. This is episode three of season three. My guest on today's episode is Brandon Pig. Coach Pig is an assistant strength coach at Madison Academy, working under Cody Hughes, working primarily with middle schoolers as well as assisting with the high schoolers. He's also an assistant track coach, working with our sprinters. He's also an author with his weekly strength newsletter, the Sunday Strength Paper, which I highly recommend. Guys, I subscribe to it. It's free. It uh, comes out every Sunday. It's fantastic. It's a, a quick but very interesting read, and I highly recommend it. Uh, coach Pig's an, um, an awesome up-and-coming strength coach. He's a great Twitter follow. I highly recommend it. We talk about his journey into becoming a high school strength coach, what his college studies were like. And then at the end, we touch on some financial advice that he has for coaches, which I think is something that coaches sometimes, especially young coaches, aren't really thinking about. A lot of us, you know, we just kind of dive into coaching because it's what we're passionate about without thinking of the financial, the fiscal ramifications of coaching and things like that. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode, and I hope you enjoy. And as always... Please leave a rating and review if you do, and stay tuned for the next episode. Welcome to the Coach Growth Podcast, where we hope to provide value and learning to not only young and new coaches, but all coaches who want to continue to grow. I am your host, Coach Andrew McGacky. If you get something out of today's episode, please leave a rating and a review, and don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the latest episode. Lastly, follow me on Twitter at Coach McGacky, that's M-C-G-H-G-H-Y, and don't be afraid to reach out with any coaches or topics you want to hear me talk about. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm joined by Coach Brandon Pig. Brandon is an assistant track and strength coach down at Madison Academy, a private school in Huntsville, Alabama. Coach, how you doing? Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate your time. Well, let's you know, let's let's kind of roll right into things. Talk about how the the why like what made you want to get coaching that process that brought you to Madison Academy man so my background story and how I got into coaching is kind of unique to say the least so where it all kind of starts and this is a lot of rabbit holes that kind of just lead always home and so I think it was 11th grade of high school I was following a guy named Corey Gregory on Instagram if any of you have heard of Muscle Farm or a max separate muscle. He's the guy who started both of those. And so around that time period, Corey started squatting every day and that just blew my mind. So I come from a household where dad was a power lifter back in the eighties and nineties of, I would say at least fairly successful. He squatted over 804 in comp. So kind of grew up with very much the power lifter principles instilled in my mind and hearing someone going heavy and going hard every single day for an extended period of time just blew my mind. And I was like, dude, I wonder how his body is adapted so that he's able to do this. And so that's kind of where my interest in research started. Fast forward to college. I went to Mississippi State University for undergrad, started out in civil engineering, quickly realized that sounds like a very boring job. So I switched my major to exercise science. And that's where I kind of fell down the research rabbit hole. At MSU, we have a lot of just randomly really important people there. One of my main professors that I learned under his name was John Eric Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is actually, he's basically the dude who invented G2 Gatorade. That was his PhD dissertation. And at one point he was the head sports scientist for Gatorade. So learning from Dr. Smith for XBiz and the uh, fundamentals of strength conditioning class was fantastic. He was a great person to learn under. 
And he's who really sparked my interest in research and let me know that that was a job I could do. And so from there, I worked under a guy named Dr. Matt McAllister. I worked with him and his PhD student on some low carbohydrate performance studies with firefighters. And so that was cool because I was getting to be both on the nutrition and performance side of research at the same time. And so I was doing anything from taking body comps with uh, like BodPod and body fat calipers to running Moxie monitors and collecting performance data. And so that's where I kind of started to realize like, okay, I'm spending all of my time trying to figure out how to make myself more athletic because I was a pretty trash athlete in high school. And I was just continually chasing that rabbit of trying to get back to the point where I could dunk again because I only dunked twice in my life before I screwed up my knee really bad. So I was trying to figure out how to get back there. And then in the research, I'm starting to see like it's a little bit more fun to do the performance research than it is the nutrition stuff. And so I was already locked into an internship. So my first like actual publication in research was on a time restricted feeding or intermittent fasting type study. And I realized that was okay, but I really didn't enjoy being in nutrition research. But I'd already accepted a GA position at Memphis to be a GA for the dean there. And so him being the dean, he really didn't do his own research anymore. It was just any time a company contacted us and wanted to do supplement validation, that was my job. So spent all of grad school just going through and doing various supplement validation type studies. And that's just what really, really pushed me over to the performance side of things. Um, I came into grad school knowing that I was kind of split on whether I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach or if I wanted to stay in research. Naturally, all the people I was working with in grad school was kind of pushing me down the research side. But as I'm training people out of my gym, training myself, I'm just really starting to realize like, man, I just love strength conditioning. Like this is the stuff that like I'm doing all this for free, basically, while I'm getting paid to do the stuff that I don't enjoy doing. And so at that point, like I just I wasn't in a position where I could fin financially afford to be able to do strength conditioning internships. So I took about the wildest job you could take to make money. I went and did door-to-door -door pest control sales up in Cleveland, Ohio. And turns out I suck at door-to-door -door sales. So after about a month of that, I swapped over and did the technician side and like actually did the pest control jobs. And so that put me in a position to where I could actually afford to go and be an unpaid intern for a time period and not just be dead broke. And so from there, uh, I was applying for a couple internships, got a few different offers, but something just kind of didn't sit right in my bones about any of them. And so I just shot Cody Hughes a DM on Twitter and I was like, you know, very respectful, but I was like, hey, do you ever consider taking interns? And 15 minutes later, we're on a call. He gives me the rundown. And I just agreed to be his intern for the fall semester of 2021. And so from there, uh, the biggest thing I first took over was the middle school program. He just kind of let me have that. And he said, this can be your testing ground. Like learn as a coach, grow as a coach, make as many mistakes as you can, figure it out, your coaching philosophy there. And then in the upperclassmen, I was an assistant for boys and girls classes. And from there, um, yes, I just did a good enough job, made enough connections, impressed enough people that they decided they wanted to keep me around. And so here I am still at Madison Academy and 
doing a couple other things. So how long have you been at Madison now? Is this your second year? Uh, so second semester, I got here in September, 2021. Okay. Um, and then what led to, uh, you coaching track? Had you had track experience before that or? So I ran cross country in high school. I didn't run track because they told me they wanted to be an 800 runner and I really didn't want to run the 800. So I would train for speed and I would train jumps, but I didn't actually compete because I didn't want to run the 800. So kind of soft, but that was kind of thing. And kind of back to the whole, like me just being a kind of trash athlete in high school, I couldn't ever figure out why I wasn't fast because my high school coaches always kind of had like the bigger, faster, stronger mentality. And it was like, well, if I get bigger and stronger, I'll be faster. And so my senior year of football, I've got the highest squat max on the team as a 165 pound receiver, but I'm running a four nine, four nine, nine hand time 40. And so like the dots just weren't connecting. And so I really spent a ton of undergrad and grad school, just reading all the legendary track stuff and trying to figure out how to get fast. And that's just kind of where my kind of passion for track and field developed. And I was really hoping that, you know, if I couldn't come back to Madison Academy, I'd wind up at a school that would at least let me work with sprinters in track. And so it just so happened to work out that I was able to uh, become the sprints coach here as well. Awesome. Let's talk middle schoolers. On Twitter, I know there, I've seen some pretty divisive arguments about, you know, when, to, when should kids start lifting, right? Yeah. Um, some people say, you know, ninth grade, and then you have, you know, Travis Mash, who, you know, has been a guest of mine, you know, he's written, uh, articles and things on it, such as he's got his son, who's like four or five years old with the barbell, you know, uh, you know, not loaded or anything, but you know, he's, you know, he advocates very young. So I think middle school, you know, strength conditioning is very interesting. What's your experience been at that level? So as far as like the safety and stuff goes, I think research is pr pretty clear now that it's perfectly safe for kids to lift. Uh, you know, you're probably not wanting to max them out every other week or anything like that. But as long as you're just focusing on neurological adaptations and just keeping the reps really, really clean and keeping a long runway, I don't think you're going to have any problems. But as far as middle school goes, we, we preach a very, very, very long runway because the early stages are going to look ugly no matter which way you cut it. There are 13, 14 year old boys and girls. Some of them have gymnast like gymnastic background and can just pick anything up right away. Others have a background in Xbox and it takes them three full months to learn how to trap our deadlift correctly. So you have this extreme range of abilities in one room. And so on, you have to, it's a weird balancing act of, okay, the kids who can do it really well, how do I progress them safely while also creating an environment where the kids who are still struggling just to do the bar for a bench press don't get completely left behind and also don't get thrown into an environment that they can't handle. So a few things I did is in the first really like eight weeks, our warm-up sets for all of our lifts would basically be me taking the cues that I wanted to teach them and them to be able to feel to do the lifts well. I would create exercises to where they could actually feel those cues. So for example, with trap bar deadlift, we would have this tri-set we would do 
The first being a cat cow or a cat camel stretch. But instead of doing it in quadruped on the ground, you would actually be in the trap bar holding the handles. And so cat back, for those of you who can't see, think of like the scaredy cat from Halloween. Cat back is where I'm telling you like, okay, this is where I don't want you to be when you're deadlifting. Now at the same token, I don't really want you to be in full on cow or camel either. But if you're so far to the cat extreme, when I tell you cow, you're probably gonna wind up finding that neutral spine that I'm looking for. Uh, the next one, we called it Ironmans. And so you would be prone on a bench and you'd kind of be doing that banana uh, core exercise that a lot of people do, where you're just kind of flexing the full posterior chain. But we would have like two and a half or five pound weights in your hands and you would have your, your hands straight back and shoulder flexion, kind of like Ironman looks when he flies. And so that teaches how to feel lats engaged when you're starting that uh, initial pull from the floor. And then the third one would be kind of combining those and it'd basically just be getting an athletic stance, but there's a band tethered to the rack right in front of you. And you're keeping those lats tight, hands driven down beside you, but you're in a good kind of quarter squat stance with a neutral spine. And so we'd rotate between those three. So that way, whenever you're lifting, I can give you, I can either say like cowback, Ironman, or athletic stance while you're lifting, if you're doing something wrong and boom, you know exactly what it feels like to do what I'm asking you to do. And so from there, we emphasized a ton of tempo. And so just keep the reps really slowed and controlled and force them to learn the technique. And then now this semester, we're really starting to see the benefits. Uh, Cody actually came in here the other day and he's like, dude, I was watching your kid's trap bar and I don't think there's a single kid in the class that's in a bad position. And so when you really emphasize that long runway, the results may take longer and you have to delay gratification, but the results are so worth it, man. The, their advantages to let you know what obviously what you're saying because kids first exposure to the weight room is their ninth grade year their 10th grade year or whatever it's going to be that same that same thing you're just allotting you know yourself more time to to really fix those you know those mistakes i mean i've got i could have a group you know we don't have any lifting at our middle school program right now so when kids come in the weight room with me for the first time you know a lot of them are starting out in completely different places when we when the year takes off so I'm, I'm having that same thing with 15, 16, 17 year olds. It's, a, it's awesome that you're in a position to, to really, you know, give them a head start, I guess, um, in learning those positions and things like that. So when they're high school athletes and, you know, they're, they can just pick up right then and there. So I, I think that's awesome. Um, one thing, so I coached junior high football for a little bit, you know, my assistant always talked about, you know, working with middle school kids is like herding cats. Um, <laughs> And that was, you know, that was his favorite phrase. And, you know, there's some truth to that to an extent. So what do you, what do you do to keep their attention, their focus for extended periods of time at an age group where sometimes that's difficult? So the biggest thing I've found that drives success there is circuit training, specifically circuits at different stations, because when they're all at the same rack and only one person's lifting, there's a whole lot of opportunity to get distracted and start doing something stupid. But if I can put you in a different station where you're always working and you're always getting quality work done where you have to be focused, 
now that opportunity to get distracted and to start jerking around and be a classic eighth grader, that opportunity is a lot smaller. And so you kind of just, you have to set an environment to where you set them up for success. And then part of that, I mean, honestly, it may just be, I'm doing a poor job of setting the standards and coaching them on how to stay locked in. But if you can't set those standards and like find ways to make sure those standards are maintained, the easy way to avoid that is just set up an environment where they can't screw it up. I think that's a really good, a really good point. Take away those opportunities for them to be, I don't want to say, you know, middle schoolers, but to, to get distracted, right. To, yeah, yeah. no, that's a really good, that's a really good point. I try to instill those same thoughts into our, our junior high track coaches because they're sometimes overwhelmed. I'm like, just keep them busy, keep them busy, keep them moving. And, and you'll find that a lot of problems solve themselves. Uh, so, you, you know, you mentioned uh, coach Hughes, uh, mm-hmm. Cody Hughes, very well known, very well respected, well thought of coach um, in our industry, obviously has a, a very big presence. What's it been like working and learning under him? Man, I can't speak highly enough of Cody. From day one, literally from our first phone call together, Cody's first question to me was, how are you going to take care of yourself and make sure you're able to eat and not be overstressed and miss sleep? That was his biggest question for me. Literally from day one, he was worried about my well-being, not about what I could do for him. And so Cody's done a fantastic job of putting me in front of other coaches so that if I wanted to take a job somewhere else, I would have the opportunity to do it. He's done a great job of promoting me on Twitter and helping me get my name out there. Like I, I cannot speak highly enough. The dude, he's, you know, you hear the, ter- the phrase servant leader, leader thrown around but he has 100% been a servant leader to me ever since I stepped in. Cody was actually the first strength coach I ever, I ever interviewed. Unfortunately, the, the interview didn't make it out to uh, the public. I don't know if it was mine or his, but the internet service was not cooperating and, and it was such a horrible, so few of the interview actually made it to the recording that unfortunately we had to scrap it. Um, but one, one thing that I thought was really cool was when you were talking about, your, you know, telling your story about, how you were, you know, working pest control and now you're in this position, you know, if anybody's ever heard Cody's story, he talks about how, you know, he was a milk delivery man or was going to be a milk delivery man or something like that. And then, you know, he got the job where he's at now. And obviously, you know, it's worked out well for him. You know, you're, you're doing um, very well in your position. So I think it's really cool that somewhat similar, like no, not what you were thought you were going to be doing, but you both ended up in the same spot. So I think that's really awesome. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny because for the most part, me and Cody are, very different in terms of our background experiences, the way we do things, etc. But there are a few things like the funny thing is, is like our conclusions we've come to through very different backgrounds are very similar. But also there are just a few of those small little things where it's like, huh, we both got interested in this field through Corey Gregory. Like we both have those random blue collar jobs here and there. And just things like that, where it's like very small, but things that you'd never even think about considering having in common, but we both do. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't heard much from Corey G in a while, but I actually, I did his, um, I actually like subscribed to his, his workouts a couple of years okay. ago. A lot, I take a, a lot of his principles actually carried over to like my philosophies now. Um, I, I, like you were saying, like the squat everyday thing that, you know, that really taught me that helped me buy into the fact that like you can do patterns, movement patterns and things like that on a day-to-day basis. It's just, it's more of a volume thing so much as like a a movement thing. So yeah, I I thought it was really cool when you brought up Corey. Corey's kind of ahead of his time in a lot of things. Oh yeah. 
Well, I want to talk track. We're both track coaches, um, which I think is awesome. You know, I think there's a lot that strength coaches can take from track coaches and a lot that track coaches can take from strength coaches. Um, I think that, you know, sport coaches and, and, and strength coaches, sometimes there's a divide there when I don't necessarily think that should be the case. I'm, they're, they're different things, you know, to some extent, but there's a lot of similarities. Coaching is coaching, in my opinion, right? It's just, what are you coaching? Um, and obviously a track coach and a strength coach wear different hats, but there's, there's going to be some, some crossovers there. What are some things that, you know, you take from track into your weight room and that you take in your weight room out to the track? So I think track is a really good fit for strength coaches because to me, it's kind of the same goal. Like you're looking to apply stimuli that lead you to get a certain result. Like you don't have to worry about game scheme. You're prepared for the events and you get better at the events. Like that's really it. And like, of course, there are a few things that you have to learn the technicalities of like handoffs to relays or block starts or thing like that. But at the end of the day, like as far as the programming goes, it's probably a much better fit for strength coaches than any other sport. I would say the biggest thing that strength coaches might not know about track is how a track meet actually looks. Like in their mind, it's like, okay, you're going to go do one, two events. Maybe there's X amount of time in between and then you're done for the day. Well, actually, you're probably getting there around 7 a.m. Your first meet might be around 9 or 10 a.m. So maybe you have the four by one at 930 and then you have long jump at 10 and then you have the 400 at 1015. And then you've got a three hour break until the 100s at 115. That's how our last meet played out. And so I think part, that's the part that strength coaches might not understand is like, okay, one guy may have long jump before 400. One guy might have to come straight off the 400 with only 10 minutes rest and then go long jump. That's the part. And then also like, once you get to state, state is back to back to back. It's three days in a row. And if kids aren't prepared to be able to compete at a high level three days in a row, you're setting them up for failure. I think those are the things that strength coaches can learn from track. But as far as what I take from one side or the other, performance, I tend to be more on the higher intensity, lower volume side. But at the end of the day, I have to prepare them for those times where they have to go really hard with a short amount of rest in between. So I try to kind of, I try to stick to as much of a high, low or a hard, easy model as I can to where there are going to be days that are just really freaking hard and you're going to have to jump, you're going to have to sprint and you might have to do a lactate event all within the same hour. But the next day is going to be an easy day. I'm going to make sure that we're not overly taxing you two days in a row. And then from there, we get some recovery. And then maybe we have a sprint specific day or a jump specific day, things of that nature. Coming into the weight room. Um, so we always start our day with kind of our athletic development type work. So after we finish the dynamic warm up, we go into sprint stations where we're either doing some type of resisted sprint with the exergenie or some type of isometric hold. Uh, holding sprint shapes, or we're doing march like marching, skipping type drills. Uh, we'll do some jump stuff. Like this past week, Cody started introducing the standing triple jump to his guys, 
And then from there, we go into 10 flies with a five yard build in. And that's just, that distance is just because our turf is technically 30 yards long, but five yards on either side runs into a door. So you really only get that middle 20. And so that's just the distance we've got. We want to have enough room to be able to slow down and not smack a door. So 10 fly with the five yard building just so happens to be with what we work with. So I get to do a lot of things there. Uh, this past week, I've been implementing a few drills that I learned from Les Spillman in his courses. And so those have been working really well. Um, I don't know if, Le I'm sure Les is cool with me giving out some of this stuff because I know he's showing it on his Instagram. But what we've been showing is coming out of a two point stance, having a PVC pipe out in front, showing you where to bring your knee to. And so that helps you get the knee up far enough that you have enough time to get your foot back behind you to go forward and not strike out in front of your center of mass. That drill has been money this past week. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of good things that you touched on there, you know, for me. So I started as a track coach before I became a strength coach, but one thing that, you know, the track coaches have been doing for a very long time that ties very well to strength coaching, uh, strength conditioning is periodization, right? Yeah. Breaking things up into blocks, breaking things up, you know, we're going to, this is an acceleration phase and then we're going to work max velocity and things like that. Similar to what a lot of coaches will do in the weight room. Like we're going to focus on max strength, this block, and then we're going to focus on rate of force development, things like that. But another thing that I think that's great about coaching track and, and not that this isn't true for other sports per se, but in, in my experience that, you know, being a head track coach has really helped me with that carries over to the weight room is I've got sprinters. I've got distance kids. I've got jumps, jumpers, vaulters, throwers, all doing different things. When you get into the weight room, you're going to have kids at different levels with different needs. And obviously, you know, we want to check, you know, do things that try to check as many boxes for as many kids as we can, just from a logistics standpoint. But my milers and two milers are never doing the same workout as my shot putters because right. they're just, that just doesn't make sense. You know, when I go into a weight room, like let's say with, you know, like football players, my quarterbacks, and my defensive linemen usually aren't doing the same thing either. And that mindset that, you know, what can I take that's going to, you know, facilitate the results for each event? You know, I, I started that, you know, in track and then that's carried over to the weight room. And I think that's something too, that, you know, like you touched on earlier, when you have kids at different levels, I think that's, you know, same thing when you have kids at different events. And I think that's something that's been really beneficial coming from a track background for me is recognizing that, you know, not every kid should be doing the exact same workout all the time. And so, and, and being able to differentiate things based on needs, um, that background has served me very well as in my new role strength, as strength and conditioning coordinator. So that's something I think too, that track coaches that, you know, just been doing a long time out of necessity because we have so many events you carry that over to a weight room environment. I think there's a lot of benefits there. Um, and then there's other things like technicalities, um, you know, track coaches tend to have a, a pretty good understanding of biomechanics. Um, a lot of the times, depending on the events, uh, how to manipulate certain energy systems, things like that. I think as track and field has, I don't want to say this. I mean, high, low, isn't new, you know, Charlie Francis isn't new things like that. Um, but there's been more of a, a shift to that mindset, in my opinion, you know, Tony Holler is, you know, and feed the cats has, has been a big push for that kind of thing, but just coaches in general kind of getting away from just doing more for the sake of doing more. And I feel like I've seen the same thing in the weight rooms, right. You know, less and less coaches are just, you know, going into the weight room and programming absurd amounts of volume just because they want their kids to be sore and tired. And I think that's great. And I think that, so those, you know, those mindsets complement each other very well in the weight room and on the track, like you were saying. Oh yeah. I mean, 
shoot, my middle schoolers are still just doing one set of everything. And so the other day, Cody asked me, he's like, so why are you still just doing one set of everything? I was like, well, it hasn't stopped working. Like, if it's if they're still adding five pounds to the bar with really good technique every week, I don't see the need to change anything. And so, yeah, that's definitely because I was I was definitely a product of like in football, we ran repeat 400s, we ran repeat 410s, like our sprint work was gassers. Like i came from that very high volume kind of like beat you down type environment. And so I have to probably keep myself because of those experiences, I probably have to keep myself from going too far on the high intensity, low volume side of things, just because my experience was so bad that that's probably what I run to. But yeah, seeing, seeing a more, I mean, I don't want to call it a modern approach, but seeing people start to adopt a high, low, or maybe a feed the cats type model has been really cool to see. So you're, you know, halfway through your second semester. What are some things, you know, in, I guess, in the short amount of time that you've been at Madison Academy, what are some advice that, uh, pieces of advice that you could give out to other, you know, young strength and conditioning coaches that want to get into that, you know, into the, into the, the high school or middle school training sector? First thing is just be good at what you do. Like, you got to know your stuff. Don't skip the basics, but once you understand the basics, feel free to start looking for other areas where you can add value and start to kind of figure out what really interests you and where no matter where you step in, you can bring value. And once you've been there for a while, they don't want you to leave. Second piece of advice would be figure out how you can give yourself room to take those opportunities. For me, that was going to do door-to-door sales and pest control for a full summer. Is that fun? No. Did that make me a better coach? I mean, sales, you have to be really good at explaining the why, and you have to be good at keeping your calm. So those are skills that can translate over to, to uh, strength conditioning. But in and of itself, that didn't make me a better coach. So I had to delay the gratification of doing what I wanted to do, which was coaching, to be able to put myself in a position to say, I can coach. I can afford to start taking these unpaid internships. So that's where, if you, if you do those two things really well, if you're good at what you do and you know your stuff and you're in a position to take whatever opportunity comes your way, you're probably going to be fine. You know, from my own personal experience, to speak on that, you know, one of the last things you said, I, oh, I took the opposite route and I have always worked jobs that would just allow me to coach to the detriment of myself financially sometimes. So, you know, as someone who had, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, have that advice given to me in the past, I, I, I think you're, you're spot on there. A lot of people just want to get right into coaching before they've set themselves up to be able to do that in a stable environment, you know, at home, financially, whatever. Um, so as someone who's been on the flip side of that, who has, you know, put himself in some very poor situations for the sake of coaching. Uh, I think you're absolutely spot on with that coach. Um, and that's really good advice. And I don't think a lot of people think about those things when they get into coaching. And part of that, like my background, I've had a lot of like mental health issues in the past. And so I have certain things that I'm just not willing to sacrifice because min- maintaining my mental health is a priority priority to me. So there were points where like, okay, I would sacrifice sleep or I'd sacrifice nutrition or I'd sacrifice exercise so that I could do more. But once I saw the repercussions of that, 
I eventually just had to set very firm boundaries for myself and say like, no, if it means it takes longer for me to get where I want to be, that's fine, but I'm not going to compromise these boundaries. And so I wasn't going to take an internship if I was going to be, you know, eating ramen and cans of tuna and sleeping three hours a night, just so that I could say like, oh, I'm checking the box of getting more experience and getting closer to where I want to be. And if you're able to do that, I'm not talking down on that at all. If you're able to do that, that's great. Get that experience, go ahead and get your foot in the door as many places as possible. But for me personally, it just wasn't what I was willing to do. You know, I've seen you uh, tweet out about finances, you know, um, about uh, crypto and investments and things like that. I think financial advice is something that a lot of young coaches don't think about, you know, so everybody's reading super training instead of, you know, Dave Ramsey. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you know, coaching it is an endeavor that most people don't get into because of the financial gain, not that, you know, co coaching doesn't have, um, doesn't have the ability to pay well, but you know, a lot of times that's typically not the reason people go into it. So uh, financial advice, I think, and um, financial stability is something that a lot of coaches aren't, that's not in their, the forefront of their mind when going into this career path or even just as a side gig or whatnot. So what, you know, what are some financial tidbits if you could, you know, give out to somebody, uh, a young coach that wants to get into coaching, what's some financial advice if you have some? If I was just going to give you three very simple, not always easy to do, but very simple concepts that have made a huge impact on my finances, it would be number one, figure out how frugal you can be without feeling deprived. And so in grad school, I was in a position where my GA stipend was about 70 bucks a month less than what my rent was. So if I wasn't in school or at doing research, I was doing DoorDash. And so for me, it was like, okay, I might have bought a new shirt or a new pair of shoes from like an on sale to Nordstrom Rack once during grad school. I would eat Taco Bell every Friday because it made me feel like I was getting to eat out. And that was pretty much it. In grad school, I didn't have Wi-Fi. I didn't have TV. Like I saved money everywhere I could. And so that's like kind of a general thing in life is like figure out what you're willing to do that other people aren't and really capitalize on that. So for me, it was giving up Wi-Fi. It was giving up TV. It was giving up eating out. It was giving up buying all the things that people want to buy. And was that easy? No, but that's a very simple way to start just adding more money to your bank account. Second, and so this one I actually tweeted out the other day. If you can't afford to buy two of it, don't buy one of it. That's a very simple rule. Like if you're taking calculus, it's like a limit. If you're always just taking half, you can never actually get to zero. And so like, think about that. Like you probably, you might not need to have a full on budget. I don't use a budget because that's just not really how I work. I just kind of have mental constraints on like, okay, I can probably allot this to frivolous spending, but no more. And so it's kind of a mental budget, not a physical one. But you need to be able to understand like, okay, this is the amount of money I have for frivolous spending. And so say that's $200 a month. So if you want to buy just one thing, make sure that it's not more than $100. If you can't afford two of it, you can't afford one. 
And if it ever puts you in a position where you're like, okay, I've got $1,500 rent is due next week and rent's $1,000 and I want to buy this thing to cost $600. You just put yourself in a $100 hole where now you've got to scramble and you've got to be anxious and scrambling for money to come up with that extra hundred. Whereas at the end of the day, if you just said, okay, my bills that do are a thousand, I've got 1500, I can spend up to 250. Now you've got a $250 cushion where if some other unexpected, unexpected expense pops up or, you know, maybe you just want to do something nice to your friends or your girlfriend, you can still afford to do that without feeling anxious or feeling like you're going to be broke or not be able to pay your bills. The third piece of advice I would give comes from the richest man in Babylon. And that is whatever you get paid, 10% is for you. As soon as you get paid, before you pay a bill, before you do anything, take 10% of that and give it to yourself. And the funny thing is you will never miss that 10%. It's really, really hard for people who live paycheck to paycheck, because I lived paycheck to paycheck for about five years, to believe that they won't miss that 10%. But I promise you, if you next time you get paid, take 10%, give it to yourself, and see if you miss it. I promise you, you won't. So those three rules. Number one, figure out how uh, frugal you can live without feeling like you're deprived. Number two, don't buy one unless you can afford to buy two. And number three, always pay yourself first at least 10% more if you can. I think those are all three of those are great pieces of advice, coach. Um, thank you. I, you know, uh, I think that a lot of people are going to get something out of that. I know I did. Uh, financial wisdom is something that I'm incredibly lacking in. Uh, so I, you know, America is. Yeah, honestly. So I, you know, I appreciate that. It's got me, you know, thinking about some th things that I need to, I need to start changing. Um, so I appreciate that. Like brainwash yourself with good business ideas, like find a few, like I start way I got on this whole financial rabbit hole was I followed Chris Johnson on Twitter. He posted out the books he reads every year. Just so happened to have a few of them on my bookshelf that I never got around to reading. That was rich dad, poor dad, richest man in Babylon and thinking, go think and grow rich read through them. And I mean, it genuinely changed my life. It'll, it's a very slow process. And in the beginning, you'll think you're doing a lot for nothing, but after doing it for two full years, I don't know if I should say there's not like, I'm not, I don't want to say this in a braggadocious way. When I started this journey in March of 2020, actually, I remember the day because I remember checking the stock market and wishing that I had money to invest. It was March 18th. I had $27 in my bank account, 27. Fast forward today, what is today? Yeah, March 14th, almost a full two years later, I have 16,000. During most of that time, I'm an unpaid intern or I'm working as, an, as a GA where I'm getting paid less than my rent is each month. But if you just follow those three rules, I promise you the money will come. And I know 16,000 is probably not a lot to a ton of people, but going from 27 to 16,000 in two years is a big deal for me. 
I'm sitting here thinking back. I don't think I've ever had more than 10,000 in my account at once. So I've never, I, my, I've never my mind's blown. I'd never had more than $2,000 to my name before that point. And when I had that 2000, it was when I was in high school and I just had that much money because I worked and I didn't have bills. And I bought a really nice Fender Stratocaster with it. Well, again, I, you know, I think there's some really good points there. Um, and, and so thank you for that advice, coach. Kind of wrapping things up a little bit. What is next for you? You know, so Coach Growth Podcast, you know, that's the title for a reason. Always want to end on how do you as a coach, what do you, what do you, what does your future look like? You know, how do you plan on growing and uh, building up your, you know, career as a coach? You know, that's a really funny question because I don't know the answer. Um, I am wait, I have a job offer from another school here locally, but I'm waiting to see because Madison Academy is a private school. So the budget is dictated by enrollment. So the scale of what I could be paid is like between zero and full-time plus track. So I'm trying to figure out where that scale falls because I'm at a point in my relationship with my girlfriend where I'm ready to propose to her, but I'm not gonna do that if I don't think I can afford the wedding and to support her as my wife and eventually hopefully have kids. So, kind of depending on where everything falls i'll either be a full-time assistant here at madison academy and keep working with the track program or i will take that job at the other school and either way i'm going to be in a really good spot both schools have phenomenal admin i cannot speak highly enough of the administration at both madison academy and that other place that's offered me a job there i'm going to be in a really good spot no matter where i end up and i've told both parties like look there's nothing personal here i just got to get married so money kind of talks right now you know i'd love i'd love to uh use this opportunity to plug your newsletter and i also know that you do some private strength training is that right right now not so much um my time is kind of precious right now so i mean everything has a price tag if you want to contact me about that you're more than welcome to but for the time being yeah hit me on twitter at brandon underscore l underscore pig Uh, The newsletter is right there underneath my bio that comes out every Sunday at one o'clock. It's called the Sunday strength paper. I just put out my seventh issue of that, I believe. So going on, I think next week will be two full months of that. And yeah, if you ever want to talk to me about anything, Twitter is probably the easiest way. And then as long as you're not like some weirdo, I'm happy to give you my number and talk more. Awesome. Anybody listening, I subscribe to the newsletter. Great stuff. Um, I, so I highly recommend it. It's a, a, an easy and quick read, but there's great value. There's been great value at each issue so far. So definitely check that out. Uh, yeah, a lot coach, less winded on there than I am on here. Uh, any closing remarks, Coach, you want to make? Any last tidbits of advice or anything that you want to say before we close up? Man, I'm good. Uh, this has been fun for me. Uh, hopefully everybody got value out of it. Like I said, if you got more questions for me, if you want to Pepper me with questions. Ask me more about the newsletter, more info from topics there. I'm always happy to get in touch with people. Awesome. Well, coach, um, I know I definitely got stuff out of this. I know everybody listening is going to get some great uh, tidbits out of this. So with that, you know, thanks for your time and I appreciate you being on. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me.